I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 98. If you're just joining us today, we are in, currently in a series of messages walking through some of the 150 Psalms, not all of them, and not in, in, uh, in chronological order as, as we find them, which might be mildly irritating to some of you. I hope that that's not a big issue. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 98. I want to begin this morning by inviting you to engage your imaginations with me. I realize that not all of you are sports fans, not all of you are hockey fans, and some of you, no doubt, uh, may not even be aware of the fact that we are currently in the midst of NHL playoffs. That's okay. I invite you to stick with me. I'll, I'll try and bring you up to speed. This spring, four Canadian hockey teams made the NHL playoffs in what this season has been called the North Division. That is, the seven Canadian teams, because of COVID, played uh, solely against one another in their division, um, as happened in different divisions in the, in the South. And of the seven Canadian teams, four of them made the playoffs. Uh, one of them, in second place, was our own local uh, hockey team, the Edmonton Oilers. Now, the team that came first was a team that I have grown up cheering for since before I can remember, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I grew up in southern Ontario and, and am a big Leaf fan. Now, the Oilers didn't fare very well. Some of you, even if you're not sports fans, you may have caught that in the papers. The, the, the Oilers lost, surprisingly, four straight games and bowed out of the playoffs early. Um, Someone, one of my brothers sent me something kind of funny. It said that the Vancouver Canucks won more games than the Oilers did since the playoffs started. And what's funny is that the Vancouver Canucks didn't make the playoffs. But because of COVID, they finished their season after playoffs began. Anyways, some of you will get that. My Leafs, on the other hand, uh, they fared a little bit better. Things were looking really good. They lost the first game, and then they came back handily and won three in a row. They were up three games to one. They had to win one more game in order to advance to the next round. And, and uh, that was something that I was really eager about. I tried not to get my hopes up. I tried not to, to get ahead of myself. The, the Toronto Maple Leafs have been letting me down for a lot of years. The last time the Leafs won a playoff round was 2004. So my, my oldest son is getting married in about four weeks. He was four years old the last time they won a series. So it's been a while. Uh, 1967 is the last time they won the Stanley Cup. That's before I was born. So it's been a long, long season of futility. And so they were up 3-1, and I was hopeful. I was beginning to imagine just the joy of winning a round. And then they managed to lose three straight games the last game, game seven on Monday night, and bow out of the playoffs in the first round again. Perhaps some of you have heard this, I don't know if you'd call it a joke, but it's this line where, where I would say, when, when I die, I want members of the Toronto Maple Leafs to serve as my pallbearers so that they can let me down one last time. I said I wanted to begin by engaging your imaginations. This is where that kicks in. I, I want you to imagine with me the Toronto Maple Leafs winning just a playoff series. Imagine them winning more than one. Imagine them going all the way to the cup final and winning the Stanley Cup. Imagine the joy 
the celebration. If you know no other Leaf fan, just imagine the delight that would bring me. And I know it takes some imagination. It may be the only thing I ever get to do is imagine this day. But the joy that would bring for me as a Leaf fan, the joy that would bring the city of Toronto and Leaf fans all across this country, there would be an explosion of joy and celebration that I can only imagine. This morning we're exploring Psalm 98, a psalm that exudes pick things up. I'll just read from the beginning again. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's with equity. I want to do three things with you as we explore this. I'm going to ask three questions. First, what is obvious? Second, what is surprising? And third, what is central? Three questions. What is obvious? What is surprising? And what is central? We begin by asking what is obvious? In the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher writes this, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the, sun, under the heavens. And he continues in verse 4, that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. That is, there is a time for sadness, for mourning, and there is a time for laughter, for joy, for exuberance. One of the failures of the church in the West, I would suggest, when it comes to our corporate worship, uh, somewhat at least in some cases, is that often our worship aims only for the laughter end of the spectrum, only for joy. And what I mean is that most of the songs we sing uh, are, are happy, happy, joy, joy kind of songs at that end of the spectrum. And, and we've often failed to hit some important notes like lament. Have we learned to 
to weep? Have we learned to pray those, uh, those difficult things that we experience? Have we, do we grieve well? The Psalms, of course, include both. Psalms that lead us into joy, like the Psalm that we're looking at today, and other Psalms uh, that teach us to lament, teach us how to grieve, to pour out our hearts in sorrow to God. Both are important. A few weeks back, we looked at a Psalm of Lament, Psalm 38. If we are coming, if our coming before the Lord, if our worship of the Lord is to be honest, it must include more than just songs that are happiness and joy. We need to learn to cry out to God in our pain. We need to learn how to call out to God in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. That is all true. It's all important for us to remember that, to bear that in mind. Now that said, what's clear is not all in life moves us to joy, to joyful praise. There is a time to weep. But there is also a time to laugh. There is also a time for exuberant joy. What is obvious as we turn our attention to Psalm 98 is that this is such a time. Psalm 98, as I already noted, as I quoted Derek Kidner, Psalm 98 is wholly given up to praise. All is joy and exhilaration. This psalm exudes delight. It drips joy. It overflows with celebration. In fact, I want to help you see that as this psalm progresses, the joy, the celebration swells. It grows. It expands. It becomes more. Look with me at the psalm. It it divides neatly into three stanzas, three parts. The first stanza, verses 1 to 3, is a call to worship directed to God's people, to the nation of Israel. Verse 3 says this, He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. And so Israel, God's people, are called to sing praises to God. Verse 1, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. This is directed at God's people. The second stanza shifts the attention. It gets wider. No longer just to Israel. Now it's to the whole earth. That is to all of humanity. All people. To every nation. Listen as I read again verses 4 to 6. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. The call to worship that begins by calling Israel to sing a new song expands and invites all of humanity, all nations everywhere. It's global to worship God. They are urged to join in worshiping Yahweh the King. Shout for joy. Burst into jubilant song. Make music to the Lord with a harp, with singing, with trumpets, with the blast of the ram's horn. All the earth is invited to worship, to praise, to celebrate joyously. What's really interesting to note at this point is that when God's people gathered during the Old Testament period to worship at the temple, only the priestly tribe of Levi was involved in playing the musical instruments. But here the nations are summoned to play the trumpets, the ram's horn. Participate in the worship of Yahweh the King. Come all the earth. And so I just want to ask you, can you hear the music growing? Can you hear the volume escalating? Can you hear the roar of voices and and the roar of the instruments as all the earth shouts for joy? All of humanity joins in praising Yahweh the King. 
We're still not finished. It's going to grow more. The third stanza brings us, brings with it yet further expansion of this celebration of praise. Listen as I read the beginning of verse 7. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Remember, if you were with us a couple weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 19, we we witnessed inanimate creation praising God. Remember the paradox of voiceless voices. As creation, the heavens declared the glory of God. Here, here we see that again. Though God's creation cannot speak with words, God's creation still proclaims his glory, celebrates God's salvation. The sea resounds, the rivers clap, the mountains sing. Creation joins in this celebration this joyous explosion of worship. Bruce Walke and James Houston in their commentary say, in expanding horizons, the escalating volume, an escalating volume, the psalmist calls upon Israel to sing a new song, to shout with joy, upon the nations to add accompanying music, and upon the entire creation to roar with applause. There are a number of well-known hymns well-known songs that have been written based on Psalm 98. The most well-known one, one that I am confident every one of you knows at least by name, everyone, no matter how infrequently you may uh, participate in a worshiping community, and that is the song, the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Joy to the world is based on Psalm 98. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rock hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. There's this celebration of God's coming, of Christ's coming. Trumper Longman writes, everyone and everything should celebrate God. That is what is obvious as we turn to this psalm. That is what is obvious as we read this psalm. All are called to joyful worship of Yahweh the King. James Montgomery Boyce asserts this, not all of us have good voices, but I do not think the angels find poor voices offensive when hearts are full of gratitude to God. When we burst forth in praise, we make a joyful noise to the Lord. We celebrate with joy God the King. In this psalm, we are called to joyous worship of the God of the Bible. All of humanity, all of creation. That is what is obvious. Second question, what is surprising? Perhaps some of you noticed something were jarred a little bit when I read our text in its entirety earlier. And that concerns the reason for the joyous praise. All of humanity, all of creation, joining with Israel, joining with God's people, summoned to worship God, to sing a new song, to shout for joy, to burst into jubilant praise. Why? Why this joyous, loud explosion of worship? Verse 9 tells us, for he comes to judge the earth. God is coming to judge the earth. God is coming as judge. Therefore, celebrate. Therefore, sing your hearts out. Therefore, let joy overflow. Really? 
God's coming to judge? Woohoo! That, that's maybe not what we were expecting. Boyce calls this most unexpected. God is holy. God is just. Because he is holy, sin is a great offense to him. Sin must be paid for. And because he is just, wrongs will be paid for. Sin necessarily has a consequence. God is coming to judge the earth. Woohoo! Sorry, I made someone jump. God is coming to judge. Therefore, explode in joyous worship. Really? If you have ever found yourself in court, standing before a judge, I dare say what you felt in those moments was not exuberant joy, but a heavy soberness. Or perhaps you have not stood before a judge in court, but you've been driving down the road and suddenly noticed flashing lights in your mirror and something happens as you are pulled over by someone to whom you have to give account. God is coming to judge the earth. Therefore, celebrate with joy. When we're confronted by one to whom we will be held, by whom we will be held accountable, typically it's not joy that we feel. So how is it good news that the day of judgment is a reason for joyous celebration? How is God coming as judge a day for great joy? Now, let me say this. God's judgment will not be good news for all. Not all will rejoice. Those who persist in their rejection of Christ will experience a different thing. But that is not the focus of this psalm. The focus of this psalm is exclusively on those, Israel and all of humanity, who worship God. But how can God coming in judgment be good news for anyone? Uh, if you and I are honest, we, we know our guilt before a holy God. We know how desperately we fail to live the life that he calls us to live. Sometimes simply in our weakness as human beings, but sometimes out of rebellion in our hearts. So how can God coming as judge be good news? That, that brings us to the third question. What is central? Uh, what is central in this whole psalm takes us back to the first stanza of the psalm. Listen as I read again. Sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things things his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him the lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations he has remembered his love and his faithfulness to israel all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our god what is central is the salvation that god has achieved the victory that god has accomplished it is possible, though it's not specified in this psalm, but it is possible, and I would suggest likely, that this psalm would have been composed and first used by God's people in worship upon their deliverance from exile in Babylon. Just real briefly, a 
a reminder of Israel's history. God rescued his people out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt through the foundational act of deliverance in their story as a people. And that is through the Exodus. They pass through the Red Sea. God delivers them uh, amazingly. In fact, if you look in, I think, Exodus 15, Miriam's song of deliverance uh, is echoed in Psalm 98. God's deliverance of God's people. And from there, they are led through the wilderness. Eventually, they get in the promised land. Eventually, God installs a king. And over time, the, the king's leadership, Saul and then David and Solomon, things deteriorate. The kingdom is ripped into two after Solomon in the nation of Israel in the north, and the nation of Judah in the south. And, and then because of idolatry, because of their sin, the nations in the north, Israel, go into exile in the hands of the Assyrians around 722, never to return. Ten lost tribes. The, the southern nation of Judah fares not much better. They stick around for about 150 years more, but because of their idolatry, because of their sin, and failure to live faithfully for God, they too are brought into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. And, and they suffer in exile. They, they see their land destroyed. They see the temple destroyed. They are away from the temple, which they understood to be the place of God's presence. And they are utterly devastated. They recognize that they have screwed things up royally, that their sin has landed them where they are, and they are devoid of joy. In fact, their captors encourage them. They kind of mocking them, tell them, hey, sing some of your songs of joy. We read this in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, that is Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us, for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? God's people in exile do not experience joy. And so if Psalm 98 is written and used upon their return from exile, this celebration of God's deliverance, God's salvation, uh, God is a God who brings about great reversals, a victory. Here the psalmist says, speaks of the marvelous things the Lord has done. His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation. Yahweh has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. Now whatever the original context of this psalm, whether the exile or some other uh, event of rescue, of deliverance, of salvation, what we need to take heart, what Walkie and Houston say, they say all of God's victories in the Old Testament, all of God's victories in the Old Testament were only a rehearsal of his real victory, the victory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, and death. Every other event that brings salvation, whether it's the exodus event, whether it's return from exile, whatever else it might be, is only a rehearsal of his real victory, the victory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, over Satan, sin, and death. That victory was accomplished on the cross. 
The cross shows us why God coming to judge is good news because God, uh, on the cross, the cross reveals to us both the holiness of God, the perfection of God. God, we, we want God to say, oh, don't worry about your sin, but sin is an offense and God in his holiness cannot simply ignore it. He can't say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Sin, because God is just and holy, sin needs to be paid for. And so on the cross, we see Christ stepping into the way, taking our place, our substitute, bearing God's just judgment, his wrath for our sin. We see the holiness of God. We see that his holiness, his justice needs to be satisfied. And we see his great love. Because in his holiness, God must punish sin. And in his love, he desired to restore us. And so he became the sacrifice. Christ came and bore what we deserve. Christ came and achieved for us the salvation of God. He, God's gift of salvation for us. Look with me at the final verse of the psalm. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. What does that mean? Well, Eugene Peterson puts it this way in the message. He'll straighten out the whole world. He'll put the world right and everyone in it. God came. God comes to set all things right. To do away with injustice. To do away with violence. To do away with wickedness and evil and rebellion. To do away with sin. And to set all things right. Righteousness means the right relatedness of all things. And so for God to come and set all things right means that he sets us in a right relationship with God the Father, with God the King. He sets us in right relationship with one another. He restores broken relationships horizontally. He sets us right even with his creation. Equity speaks of uprightness. He came to set all things right, to set all things straight. And so when God comes as judge, he will complete what he has started. He will bring to fulfillment what he accomplished on the cross. In his holiness, sin has been punished. And in his love, God provided his son, Jesus, to bear that so that we didn't, so that we could be restored into relationship, the relationship we were created to. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus was judged in our place. Jesus bore the penalty for your sin and mine, for all who put their faith and hope in Christ. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And do you see what that means? If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus, your day of judgment has already happened. It happened at Calvary. It happened on the cross. We read in Romans, therefore, there, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your judgment has already happened. Your judgment fell upon Christ. Oh, what marvelous things God has done. He has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm has worked salvation for him. Do you see what has happened? Salvation is the work of God through Christ. Salvation is a work of grace. It is a gift of God's giving, of his grace. It is not earned. It is not merited. We don't contribute to it. We simply receive. It is brought by his right hand, by his holy arm. 
It is his salvation for us, for all who put their trust in Jesus. So for those who are in Christ, for those who trust Jesus, when Christ comes as judge, there is no reason for fear. There is only reason for joy because at last all things will be set right. All sin will be done away with. All things will be as God intended them to be. And even creation, this psalm shows us, even creation longs for that day. We read this in Romans 8, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation waits in eager expectation for this day. Even creation longs for this day when Christ comes to judge the earth, to set all things right. And for those in Christ, it is a day of only great joy and celebration because we will be fully restored to the Father. We will be in intimate fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All things will be as they should be. If you're with us this morning and you are not a Christian, you've not put your faith in Jesus, you've not repented and believed, I want to speak to you for a moment. We all as human beings seek joy. We, We seek happiness. Here we see what we all seek, exuberant, overflowing joy. Joy that is found in God, joy that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. You know, in our world all around us are people who are trying to find, desperately find solutions to solve the, the problems of this world, to, to find, to set things right so that they experience joy. They, they, there's this, this longing that is in all of us for things to be right, for, for us to, to experience life as it should be to be filled with joy. But in our world, people turn to all manner of other solutions, political solutions, ideological solutions to to solve the the ills that plague our world, poverty and racism and and climate change. I mean, these are the big ones we hear about and, and people devise different plans and oh, if we do this and if we do this, they look to these political ideological solutions, blaming, demonizing anyone who disagrees, failing to see that our problem is sin. It is alienation from God who loves us, who longs for us to be restored, the one in whom alone we will find joy. The problem is sin. The problem is our broken, brokenness before God. And the only solution is the salvation that is found in Christ. In Christ, we are restored. In Christ, all things are set right. And in Christ, our hearts are overflow with true joy, a joy that will be consummated when Christ comes to judge the earth. No other solution will work. Salvation comes from God, from his right hand, from his holy arm. It is found in Christ, his gift of righteousness, his atoning sacrifice in our place, his grace freely given, forgiveness from him, uh, entering in a relationship because he loves us and through faith in Christ, we are accepted. If you have not done that, I urge you this morning to come to Christ, to bow your knee to Christ, to cry out to him, and he 
will restore you. He will set you in right relationship with the Father. You will receive his grace. You will receive his forgiveness. You will be clothed with his perfection, with his righteousness. And you will be able to join the people of God anticipating the day when Christ comes to judge the earth as a day in which joy will overflow. I began this morning by inviting you to engage your imaginations with me, to imagine my favorite hockey team doing what they haven't done in a very long time. I invited you to imagine the joy and the celebration that would set off for a few of us, for a few of us. Uh, but, but even should that happen, or even if it only happens in our imaginations, I want to say this, I want to make this so clear. Any celebration, any joy that I would feel or Leaf fans would feel with a victory, with a Stanley Cup, or even just a playoff round, pales utterly in comparison to the joyous celebration that, that we are invited into here in Psalm 98. Uh, one of the things that I have missed over these last 15 or 16 months, one of the things that I most look forward to when this season is finally behind us is gathering together as the people of God, not online, I'm grateful for this technology, grateful that we've been able to do this through this time, but, but I look forward to gathering with you as God's people, not online, not spread out, but shoulder to shoulder, I, this week, I dared to imagine what this would look like when we put the chairs all back in the middle. Without limits on our numbers, without masks, and be able to lift our voices together in joyful praise, to hear one another's voices, to hear the instruments roar, to lift our voices and praise God for his gift of salvation together. As we sing Psalm 98, as we pray this psalm, I want to say this. We are only rehearsing. We are only rehearsing. A, a day is coming when for all of us who are in Christ, we will gather, forming what the Apostle John describes in the Revelation as a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and we will sing. We will sing. There will be an eruption of joyous praise as we proclaim salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as we wait, we pray this psalm. As we wait, we sing this psalm as a testimony of our faith, of our confidence, of what we know is true, that God through Christ at the cross has accomplished our salvation. The thing that will fill our hearts, that fills our hearts even now, with a joy that overflows. Amen.